there's a thought, and it still is, to be honest with you, that uh, this was um, our course. Our, you could say our being Southern Dallas, our being African Americans, minorities, whatever. But guys that didn't go to North Dallas, I'll just say it that way. That way, this is this was this was their part of the city, and so uh, they were miffed. Um, here I was, yeah, I'm coming home, and they were happy to see me. But you know, before I came to Cedar Crest, I had been at Prestonwood Country Club for five or six years. Um, got my PGA membership there and all that, and really learned a, a ton there from a service standpoint. But the talk was, oh, I'm trying to turn Cedar Crest into a country club. I'm a have all the white guys come down here and play and know a black guy's going to be able to play. Um, so I had to really go sit down and I know that sounds weird, but like I had to go sit down like with those leaders and say, Hey man, this is what I'm trying to do. And I don't know if you guys understand this or not, but like, my livelihood is on this. You know, like, I, I got to sell golf shirts and burgers and give golf lessons to make a living. How's everything going today? Uh, everything's going great. Going great. Um, just uh, ripping and running. Uh, it's 81 degrees in December. Or That's crazy. Appro approaching that anyway. And um, the seniors are out in full force uh, starting this morning at 7 a.m. So it's been a busy day. Can't hold them back. No, no. You you don't even try. You right. lose. <laughs> I guess when is it usually cool down then? Uh, it, you know, from year to year, obviously it's different. Most of the time, the barometer is Thanksgiving. So, you know, there's at least a change in weather, you know, typically this time the high is 50, 55, and that's a good day. What we'll see this weekend, for example, highs on this weekend is 52, 54, 81 is unheard of in December. That probably means our winter isn't really coming until after the new year. Um, and it'll probably be late in February before it actually, uh, converts to spring. So I think we're about six weeks behind. Is this kind of the same thing that happened last year, though, too? Last year was okay. It was okay. Um, we had um, a little bit of a frostbite, though. Um, right, I right. Getting, getting some ice and snow and things like that. Um, I can't remember if it was December or January, though, to be honest with you. And then when did you guys have, like, the big freeze? Wasn't that February? Yeah, so that was, like, end of January, into February, yeah. and... We were flo flooded on the first floor overnight and it oh, no. flooded the first floor. And we started out the spring with, um, that's crazy because that seems like it was so long ago and it was this year. <laughs> <laughs> but we had this whole project, man. We, we basically had to take the inside of the building down to the frames, put up new sheetrock everywhere and flooring and carpet and fixtures. And it's crazy. I know. I was there like the second week of March. Yeah. I think that's you right. Just. I don't. I think the golf shop was somewhat done, but I remember the little grill area. There was still work going on in there, and then in the hallway and everything. But God, hopefully nothing like that this winter. That was a project that I wasn't prepared for, and freak storm, right? Yeah, I turned into a project manager. Um, so <laughs> on top of everything else that I was doing, I became a project manager, which was uh, interesting. You know, Ira, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Uh, not much to know here. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm a Dallas kid, uh, born and raised uh, here in Dallas, um, uh, in Oak Cliff to be specific. Um, a lot of uh, North Dallas sites might call that South Dallas now. Um, but um, I was raised in the Oak Cliff area, went to Carter High School, um, grew up about three miles uh, from Cedar Crest Golf Course and uh, 
uh, just grew up playing my junior golf there. My mom was a golfer, played in the ladies group, and I played golf with her uh, whenever she wasn't playing with them. And I guess I was uh, one of her first golf partners. When did you guys really, like, pick up the game? Uh, let's see. So first time on the golf course was probably six to seven-ish. Uh, first time actually playing and being interested in all that, I was about nine. Um, before that, I didn't like golf. Um, it was the place that my mom and her friends went to go drink. Um, and I played in the creek beds and the bunkers, and I was a kid running around, digging in the dirt. Um, but it wasn't about golf. And um, I remember um, I was nine years old. My mom was on the side of one of the holes um, uh, in the trees uh, and, uh, or near the trees. And so one of her playing partners, Miss Vicky, was across the fairway and she was like, hey, uh, take the cart over there to Miss Vicky so she can get a club. And that was a huge moment because I'm nine years old and I had driven the cart, but I had driven it with her on it. So when she was telling me to go across the fairway to Miss Vicky, like that was a big deal because I would be on the cart by myself. So I drove across the fairway. Miss Vicky's there. She gets her club, hits her shot. And she says, oh, just drive me on up to the green. So. That was my first time with another adult besides my mom on a golf cart. So I drove that up to the green. And um, I remember when Miss Vicky got off the cart, uh, she said, oh, you're a good driver. Just trying to be nice or whatever. And I remember thinking, man, golf is pretty, pretty cool. Um, I, get, I get to drive a cart whenever I come to the golf course. Right. Um, and so um, that same day, like a couple of times, my mom asked me to come putt. I didn't fight her. I just went to go putt, you know, and because they let me go drive the golf cart to the next tee box, you know. And um, so really the golf cart got me hooked. And, but I took my first golf lesson or golf camp like a couple months after that. And I've uh, been playing golf ever since. Uh, played all the way through high school. Had a small partial scholarship offer for college for golf, but went to school on a music scholarship. I was a, a musician. I played the trumpet, little drums, and uh, played piano. So I had a full, full, full offer for music. So it was a pretty easy decision in my household. Uh, as to what I was going to do in college. And uh, so I uh, did that. And when I came back to Dallas in uh, 98, went and saw the golf pro, 98, 99, went and saw the golf pro that was my mentor as a kid. Um, he gave me a job, told me to just uh, work for him until I figured it out. And um, uh, I saw him selling merchandise and putting on tournaments and events, giving golf lessons, had a junior program. Um, he qualified for the Byron Nelson. Um, and that same time, um, he was just like a rock star. Um, and uh, so as I was working for him, it just showed me a different side of golf. Um, obviously, I had already had always played competitively. Um, and then I got to see the business of golf and I'd gone to school for business, business management. And like the light bulb hit me. Oh, wait a minute. I can mix business and golf. Are you kidding me? Um, and I went in his office one day and said, hey, man love everything you're doing. How do I do it? So he told me about uh, what I needed to do to become a PGA member, what type of certifications I need to try to get to educate myself. Told me about uh, it was important for me to have credit, uh, good credit, because uh, I didn't come from money. So if I ever had my own golf course or opportunity to get a golf course, you know, it's like you can't have poor credit. And so he just mentored me through the whole thing. And within three years, I was basically running his day to day operation and he was just playing golf and teaching. And so um, I got a master's education in just entrepreneurship, to be honest with you, and um, uh, got my PGA membership a few years after that. Still, without any thought of, man, maybe I'll get my own course one day or anything like that, I just thought I'd go run a club for somebody. 
lo and behold, uh, city of Dallas, uh, had a golf course available and I bid against 21 other golf pros and our team won. So uh, I've been here since 2008 and it's been a heck of a ride, um, trying to transform Cedar Crest and even bringing Cedar Crest to what it is currently to even have thoughts and ideas and visions of taking Cedar Crest to, to the, the place that we're uh, on our way to now. So it started back playing golf with my mom and what Cedar Crest was back then. Um, not even a two-story clubhouse that was here. It was like a little one-story shack, probably about 12 to 1,500 square feet. Uh, all the gambling and everything that happened as a kid. And it, to see Cedar Crest come to here, man, it's a really personal uh, story for me, a journey for me. And I never thought, never thought that I'd come here to be the golf pro. Never thought that I'd be a, helping kids uh, like myself. And um, just nothing I never even imagined. Um, and so, so I feel very fortunate and lucky to be doing it because I love it so much. So even on the tough days, uh, it doesn't seem like work. So going back to the beginning, what was Cedar Crest? Cedar Crest um, at that time was um, like the gambling spot for the greater part of Dallas. I don't know how, I don't know what kind of show this is, um, but, uh, you know, it was the black course. It was the course in the hood, the neighborhood around Cedar Crest, as you might be aware. You know, the neighborhood was not, not nice in the 80s and 90s. In all honesty, though, in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and first half of the 70s, it was, it was actually a thriving community and neighborhood. A lot of home ownership, teachers, principals, uh, nurses, educators, uh, administrators, middle class, black families, a good part of the city they could settle in. Where did the breakdown happen? You know, into the 70s, going into the 80s, drugs was a big issue um, in the African-American community. It hit, uh, I would say, Oak Cliff and Southern Dallas pretty darn hard. Um, to be honest with you. And, and, and it's interesting, too. It's, it's, it's tied to, to, to that, but it's also tied to white flight a little bit. Uh, North Dallas was really starting to expand and um, just suburbs were booming. And so at the same time that there was this huge decline in Dallas proper, um, a lot of the suburbs were being uh, expanded and developed. And um, a lot of the attention, even city dollars, tax dollars, all that stuff was just, uh, you know, pulled away from Dallas or southern Dallas. And so um, there is just a huge void there, which I which I think still exists in the city today. Um, um, if you look at lower end economic populations and, you know, there's a middle and then you look at the high end, there's a huge chasm um, in the middle. Um, and there's a lot of poverty in Dallas um, when you get south of 30. Um, and so the drugs and all that stuff happening um, late 70s, early 80s um, and then uh, suburbs and uh, a lot of people moving out of Dallas. Uh, contributed to just like a, a wasteland. That's why you don't have a grocery store within, I don't even know, three and a half miles of this neighborhood, four miles, five miles of this neighborhood. No banks, hardly anything like that. Um, so just economically, very uh, desert type of feeling. And so not not very much here. Um, but Cedar Crest has always been uh, kind of that light on the hill, if I could describe it that, uh, describe it that way. People would always come here, um, hear about the golf course, Notice Cedar Crest has great bones, uh, rich history. It was, but it was just kind of the place you just didn't want to get caught, uh, you know, after 4 35, 30 p.m. But a lot of that's uh, since changed. But that, that, that was the kind of place that Cedar Crest was. Tremendously deep and, and rich history. And why I asked about Cedar Crest is because Cedar Crest and the golf course we're talking about hosted a PGA championship in 1927. True, and true. Tilling designed golf course in South Dallas, that it it honestly feels like currently, just like you said, 
but I'm sure going all the way back to 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, is that it was just completely everybody in a position of power turned their back on it just because that was a part of town that they didn't want to touch or deal with. Yeah, I mean the problems were 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 deep. Uh, you couldn't you couldn't attack it shallow um, and and take care of something, you know. And so with just times, you know, um, I, I wouldn't even. I don't know if I'd even describe it as uh, people turn their back on it. Um, I just think uh, other things had their attention, um, you know, and so I don't know if anybody in Southern Dallas feels that it's, it's purposeful, um, right. but there was definitely some collateral damage to decisions being made. Um, and when you start talking about trying to, you know, cause I've, I've talked to some guys and for some people and they say, I will, you know, the, why didn't the, the residents here, the community here, you know, that was a perfect time for them to step up and, you know, take control of the neighborhood or, uh, get some ownership and things like that. And um, yeah, it sounds great in theory, but you know, if you don't come from means and you can't borrow money, you can't open a business, um, you can't hire people. Um, and so it, it's, it's a, it's a, it could become a dire situation, but that that's very much in the past though. Um, but what, but, but what that was the Cedar Crest that I grew up with. How much has changed from the course, the area that you grew up with to now? I think it's uh, still in the process of changing. Um, community is changing a lot now over the last five to six years. A little bit of gentrification, but um, also just a lot of professionals and young professionals moving to Dallas and looking for urban areas. Um, and, you know, you walk into southern Dallas and a lot of people come and they just see all the opportunity now. They, it's almost like uh, they see everything that they should have saw in 1984 and 85. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, uh, so, oh, man, what a great piece of a corner lot or well, what, what a great little house and we could just renovate that and um, you know stay there and then you know flip it or something like that and so um, those types of things are happening um, uh, banks are doing business in southern Dallas again um, uh, Dallas has expanded so much and so many people are coming here that has almost forced everyone in the city to look at themselves you know and so yeah how much further north can you go you're already in Oklahoma um, so you almost have to look in the mirror and figure out, ah, well, what am I doing with that back room over there? I haven't done anything in that back room in quite some time. Or what are we doing in the backyard? Oh man. Wow. Look at that. We got to fix this landscaping. And, you know, it's just, it's that same type of effect that city leaders and community leaders are really looking at it through that lens now. And, uh, a lot of, lot of good conversations and ideas and smart people are partnering to, uh, really trying to effectively make this a better city. And for the first time in my life to be all, quite honest with you, it's um, white and black guys working together to, to make it for a better city. Um, and I don't know if I can remember a time that's ever been the case. Everyone really cares um, about doing something good, um, about leaving something good, um, you know, after we're gone. And so people are thinking bigger um, and not um, as small minded, um, even as it was a couple of decades ago. So that, 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 in my perspective, from my perspective, is really good. It's great. Has it been welcomed by the community? Uh, in some aspects, um, when you're dealing with young people, yes. There are some situations where, you know, you have uh, business development and guys that want to make money. You can't just come into a community or a neighborhood and tell everybody what they need. In all honesty, even if it's what they need, it just doesn't work that way. And so um, you have to collaborate and um, communicate properly, hopefully accept input um and and work together um and if we were if this community was going anywhere in north dallas it would have to work that way and anyone coming from north dallas coming this way i think um has to view it the same way too you have to treat it with the proper integrity 
because I don't think anybody in Southern Dallas is asking anyone to do anything for them. You know, and it'd be one thing if you were asking, hey, come do something for me. I need your help. That's um, a great point. I, I think what people are looking for is assistance, but they're not asking it to be done for them. They want to be a part of it. You have 35 and 40 year olds now that have great um, middle class jobs, uh, want to take care of their families, more than happy to have a 1500 square foot house um, with, a, with a yard and their kid can get on the bus and go to school. And I know that sounds really simple. But to be able to do that in, on this side of town um, and be safe and walk to the park and not being attacked by dogs is a huge thing. I'd like to think that the golf course has a lot to do with that. Um, I, got, I like to think that a, a lot of the community partners that we um, began to work with are a part of that as well. Cedar Crest has such good bones. Um, the undulation and slope of the golf course is not man-made. It's, it's not forced. Back in... 1918, 1919, when they were looking for places to build golf courses, they were looking for premium lots of land. They weren't looking for floodplains. They weren't looking for lake bottoms, um, none of that stuff. Um, And so they chose this property specifically because of the terrain. Um, And Oak Cliff has rolling hills all the way through it. And so um, you mentioned a little bit of this earlier. So the the history um, with Cedar Crest is unbelievable. Um, so, yes, it was redesigned by A.W. Tillinghast. Um, the original designer was uh, Sid Cooper, who was the first golf pro here. And his son was Harry Lighthorse Cooper, who won two Masters, 10 PGA Tour events. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. That has never been a part of Cedar Crest storytelling ever. I just discovered this over the last year. Uh, but that's Lighthorse Harry Cooper. He was Sid Cooper's son and actually the first person to hold uh, Cedar Crest Club Championship. Uh, excuse me, um, uh, Cedar Crest um, lowest score. Um, uh, and he held it at 14, uh, 68, um, to tell you how good of a player he was. Um, but we also had the 1926 Dallas open, which was the first event, major event here. And, uh, the Dallas open actually went so well. That's how the PGA championship was held here in 27. Um, and the Dallas open, uh, is the preemptive event that turned into the Byron Nelson. Um, and so McDonald Smith won the Dallas open in 26. He's won 27 PGA Tour titles. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Walter Hagen won the PGA Championship, uh, won his fifth PGA Championship, only player with five, uh, his fourth in a row here uh, at Cedar Crest. Quick story about the PGA Championship. Not sure if you've heard this story. Um, and so part of that, uh, that history, you know, uh, Hagen is down to Joe Ternessa in a quarterfinal match, basically about to be eliminated. Uh, I'm sure you know PGA Championship at that time was a uh, match play. Yep. So he's five. He's five down um, going into hole 13. He's taking his practice swings and sun shining in his eyes and he can't see. Kid walks over to him and says, Mr. Hagen, Mr. Hagen, uh, would you like my cap? And so Hagen never wore a hat. He had this jet black hair. He calmed back, slicked it back and always ran his fingers through it. It was just his thing, you know. And um, but, you know, he's a showman. So he puts the hat on his head, just kind of sits it on top of his head, swings. And when he swings, hits it to about 15 feet, makes the putt, makes birdie, flips the guy, ends up winning the match, comes back the next day, wins the championship. The kid that came out to watch him um, and offered him the hat was Byron Nelson. Byron Nelson was in Dallas because he was coming to see his favorite golfer. Walter Hagen is Tiger Woods at that time. Um, He's uh, Rory McIlroy of of that time, right? And so he's here. Uh, just to see his favorite golfer. And lo and behold, his favorite golfer ends up wearing his hat and ends up winning the PGA Championship. That, that's part of our, our, our history. 
um, happened right here on hole 13. Uh, we had the uh, UGA championship here in 1954. Um, that's the United Golf Association. Um, so you, I'm sure you're aware of the Caucasian clause with the PGA Tour. Didn't get dismantled until 61. And so Charlie Sifford uh, broke the color barrier uh, for golf. Um, he's a Jackie Robinson uh, uh, of golf. And so he played the, the, the UGA championship was the U.S. Open for the, the Negro Tour, the Negro Leagues, if you will. That was their major. Um, Charlie Sifford won five, um, but he won the 54 UGA championship here at Cedar Crest. And he's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. So you got Charlie Sifford, uh, Walter Hagen, A.W. Tillinghast, McDonald Smith, um, just all of these stories tied into the history. Um, I could add to that the best golfer in the planet, on the planet from 1935 to 1940, Walter Goodall, caddied here at Cedar Crest all the way through the 20s, learned how to play here at Cedar Crest. And I say he's the best player in the world from 35 to 40 because he only won one Masters, two U.S. Opens, two Western Opens, which at that time was one of the majors. That was kind of like the Players' Championship of the time. But he was winning a major every year, uh, won more money than anybody from 35 to 40. Um, and he's in the World Golf Hall of Fame. Um, so you have this history, this rich history at Cedar Crest that no one knows about that we have to do a better job of leveraging um, and sharing. Um, but that's all part of our bones here. If Cedar Crest was in North Oak Cliff um, or any other part of the Metroplex, um, Cedar Crest would be held in such regard that I believe that there would be other championships that would have been held at Cedar Crest over the past 30 years, 40 years. But there's never been a reason to come to Southern Dallas until now. And I think so from the UGA event, and you said in the 50s, correct? Yeah, 54. Post that, where, where does the history take the course? Is that where you kind of start the, I would say, down a different path of? Yeah, so you, you had um, um, a lot of African-American families moving into this area, uh, definitely after World War II. And so when you start looking at uh, mid 50s going into the 60s, you're talking about established uh, neighborhoods. Um, and so other parts of the city are starting to grow. And then once the, basically once that generation, you know, becomes seniors, which is really midway through the 60s um, into the early 70s, that's really when you start to see this part of the, the city start to transform. Um, and so um, 54 is a, a little bit before that, I'd say maybe eight to 12 years prior to the, the, the true decline. But Cedar Crest is a public course at that point. The city is no longer Cedar Crest Country Club. The Shokoff family is a Jewish family that owned the property. Never really recovered from the Great Depression. Um, city ends up buying the course. Um, when the city bought the course, like they did things like cover a lot of the bunkers because um, you, you're dealing with maintenance and things like that. Public golfer didn't need all that, um, or at least at that time anyway. Um, so they were just trying to figure out the best and most efficient way to cut the grass, keep the course mown. And it really became a muni. Um, and so great bones, yes, but a muni nonetheless. Um, and so it really operated that way, uh, I would say, until its first renovation in uh, 2001. It was just one, just a run-of-the-mill golf course, you know. The, the new clubhouses here didn't get here until 2005, you know, so. <laughs> That's crazy. It's so. still the same building back from the 50s? Uh, it was, a, yeah, the original clubhouse that was a two-story um, yeah. uh, white stone, Austin Stone clubhouse, burned down um, in the 40s. And so when the city replaced the building, they didn't put that building back up. Um, they just, you know, true city form, 
did the exact the, the bare minimum. And uh, you had this 12 to 1500 square foot shack that had a golf shop and a grill like inside this space. And um, like you didn't hang out in the clubhouse at the Cedar Crest that I grew up at. You know, you sit out and ate a hot dog or a burger and went back out on the course. Um, uh, not much of anything that was inviting inside. No, it's, it's interesting, you know, just, just really fell off the map. It doesn't take long, though. You know, if you don't have events, um, you don't have activity, um, you don't have tournaments coming to your place, even in corporate fundraising events, you know, it doesn't take very long. Um, you know, you add gambling to that. And Cedar Crest was so known for gambling, dude, that like uh, when caddies came in town uh, during the Nelson and during the Colonial, if your player didn't make the cut, like all the caddies knew, go to Cedar Crest. They just go gamble for the weekend. You know, and so your guy missed a cut on Friday, Saturday morning. They'd show up, caddies would show up at the uh, the golf course. Uh, a lot more black caddies on the tour at that time. And uh, like you could follow a group out here playing for 5000 a hole or, you know, occasionally a pro would come out. There's plenty of stories of Raymond Floyd uh, coming over to, to Cedar Crest to gamble um, in the hustle. Um, it was just um, uh, Jim Thorpe, uh, his brother Chuck Thorpe, who was a better golfer than he was. Um, he was crazy, though just old guys on the putting green, you know, gambling for quarters, like everybody gambled. Like you couldn't get on the putting green and just putt, you know? So it was just a different place. Obviously that was still there from the stories you said growing up there, but yeah, when yeah, you yeah, got yeah. back here in 2008, was that still uh, the vibe that the course had? Um, a little bit. Um, it was definitely still the course in the hood. It's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Uh, did a lot of gambling here. Guys were playing dominoes in the grill, shooting dice outside the clubhouse doors drinking in the parking lot, urinating in the parking lot. Man, I remember uh, going home one night, talking to my wife, and I was like, what the hell have I done? Like, I knew we needed work, but oh my God. Everyone had, something simple. Everyone had keys to golf carts. So, the, the, Their Cedar cart. Crest, yeah, Cedar Crest hadn't had a golf pro for two years when I got here. Um, city Council the contract of the previous golf pro. And so, Basically, the city went to all the city rec centers and pulled like supervisors from the rec center. And they're like, hey, you're going to go run this golf course. And so someone had paid the guy in the in the golf shop. They gave like, I think the guy said one guy told me like the guys would pay him 50 bucks. If the guys paid the guy in the golf shop 50 bucks, he gave them a key to a golf cart. And so what would happen after that, whenever they wanted to come to the golf course, they just walk in a cart bar, just get a cart and tee off on 10 or 12 or 13. You can't see it from the golf shop. And you know, guy practices for two hours and just leaves a cart, you know, and uh, cheapest, cheapest that, trail fee I've ever uh, heard. Of. Uh, dude, dude, that's the best 50 buck investment. <laughs> if a guy did that for five years, I mean, come on, man. When I got here, just really had to clean all that up. I wanted to come here to conduct business. I wanted to come here to host tournaments. I wanted to come here and do stuff with kids. Um, I couldn't I couldn't hardly ride a kid through the parking lot in the evening. There's 30 guys, literally 30 guys that would meet up after work and they would just drink at the end of the parking lot. You know, urinate in the parking lot. Um, I called the police on the guys one time. I'm so pissed. It's probably the maddest I've been since I've been here. I was giving a lesson to a little girl. And well, if you've been to Cedar Crest, you see our practice area over at the end of the parking lot. And uh, so we were about to chip and grain chip in. And she had her, her back to the group when we were chipping. But, man, I'm sitting there chipping. And, you know, I'm coaching and talking to her. And I look over, man. A guy just came over to the fence and, like, whipped it out, you know. And. He's urinating, and I got like a nine-year-old girl right there. I was pissed. And, um, you know, I'm in the middle of a lesson, though, so I can't, like, you know, go deal with it. But 15 minutes later with that lesson and take her back to her parents and everything, I called the police. And 
I actually lied to the police. Um, I told them it was a group of guys out here. I didn't know what they were doing. I think they all had weapons and um, they were um, messing with our customers. Our customers couldn't get to their cars. I had, I, I don't know what I was trying to do, but I was pissed. And um, dude, like 12 or 13 DPD cars flew through the parking lot, lights blaring, pulled over to the guys, doors fly open, cops are out with their guns. Oh, no. All these guys were here and they were like, what the hell? Right. I felt I felt bad uh, as I saw it happening because um, it, that wasn't my intention. Um, but I guess I did make a point. And um, so they collected all the guys information and I can ban anyone from the golf course um, with proper reason. You ban them up to 90 to 180 days um, any city park. Um, and so threatening the guys with uh, suspending them from the park and. I made quite a few enemies amongst the neighborhood locals that evening. Uh, was that so, like at the beginning of your oh, yeah, tenure? Yeah. Yeah. That was maybe 90 days in or maybe 120 days in. And um, I was fed up. I was dealing with a lot of stuff every day. I'm trying to run my business and I found out about the golf cart thing. And uh, this guy whipped it out right there and using urinating while I'm teaching a, a kid. And um, I just, I don't know. I was at my wits end and um, uh, uh, totally understandable. Made a few enemies there, and that that made my road a little rocky in that first year. Was that the bottom of your yes or anger? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. what did you do to start stepping it back and gaining that trust back? Well, one of the things that happened with that, I did that did get rid of an element that I wanted to get rid of. The guy that was selling the alcohol in the parking lot, the guy that was probably peddling other stuff out there too. Shocking all words. I, I I was unpredictable to them at that point. And so, whereas Cedar Crest was a safe place and they could hang out openly and do what they wanted. After that, they thought, oh, okay, this young guy, you know, he's, he's trying to do something different. And so, um, from that standpoint, it did work. Um, we could at least operate and run a business, um, an actual business at that point. I had to go and reach out to the community guys, um, the guys that played here that um, had ear of other golfers and other community people, um, and really just try to explain to them what I was doing. There's a thought, and it still is, to be honest with you, that uh, this was um, our course. Our, you could say our being Southern Dallas, our being African-Americans, minorities, whatever. But guys that didn't go to North Dallas, I'll just say it that way. That way. This, is, this, was, this was their part of the city. And so uh, they were miffed. Um, here I was. Yeah, I'm coming home, and they were happy to see me. But, you know, before I came to Cedar Crest, I had been at Prestonwood Country Club for five or six years, um, got my PGA membership there and all that, and really learned a, a ton there from a service standpoint. But the talk was, oh, I'm trying to turn Cedar Crest into a country club. I'm going to have all the white guys come down here and play, and no black guy's going to be able to play. Um, so I had to really go sit down, and I know that sounds weird, but like I had to go sit down like with those leaders and say, hey, man, this is what I'm trying to do. And I don't know if you guys understand this or not, but my livelihood is on this. You know, like, I, I got to sell golf shirts and burgers and give golf lessons to make a living. Like city's not paying me and I need y'all support. And I can't do that with 30 guys drinking right by the door when my customers are walking in. You know, I just like, I had to, I had to literally go have those conversations. And, and if you want to drink, wonder. please come inside. And yes, and yes, me. yes. Yeah. Cause that was important too. Great point. Cause I wasn't saying don't drink, but the way we were going about it, you know, it's just can't conduct business in that way. And so once I started pulling those advocates on, started dealing with them, working with them, and I had to compromise quite a bit myself. 
because I, I, I had a fixed thought of what everything needed to be, but it was so dilapidated that I, there's no way I could do it overnight. Um, and so it became very apparent to me that, okay, this is going to take a while, whatever that while is, this is, this is going to take that. And so I had to start to compromise on uh, how, what I would do and what I wouldn't do and what I wouldn't stand for. Um, and I had to work my way towards some of those things. Um, and that started bringing some of the guys back over time. I think I've, I would say I've won over uh, mostly everyone. So doesn't it's, sound like you cool. gave out golf cart keys though. So that wasn't the compromise. No, no free round of golf here and there, but no, <laughs> no. <laughs> you have a passion for the course. Yeah, that's clear. You're you're clearly a student of its history, and you love the place that you run. You love the community that's it, that's it a part of. And I also know that everything that you're doing now about building towards the future, not just of Cedar Crest, but the people who come, the kids that come play there, that you're trying to get into the game and make sure that doing your part to provide them a better future, more opportunities for their future. And part of that's through your foundation. And I want you to, to please describe a little bit where the genesis of it comes from what what it is and then kind of where we're at and where we're going okay um so when i first got to cedar crest uh, one of the things i did uh, when i first got here i worked with first t quite a bit and it was a really easy thing to do in all honesty because uh, they had established relationships um, in the community they had already been working with schools already had the relationship with principals and things like that and um uh, so from a community junior golf standpoint um they were a great tool uh, for me to use uh, when I got here and allowed me to be able to focus on some other things. But that changed. The development of Trinity Forest happened. And um, uh, I think everyone knows that uh, first he got a brand new home site um, out there at no charge, uh, completely free to them. Um, what I think most people don't know is that that home site was supposed to be at Cedar Crest. So when first he came to Dallas, um, it was one of the only chapters that didn't have a home site. So first he operated at numerous, numerous golf courses, but never had a home. And so the idea and the agreement with the city of Dallas was that they would do this for a number of years until they created enough capital or do enough fundraising to build their home. And it was supposed to be um, next to the driving range on Cedar Crest, um, kind of a view corridor on Illinois. You'd be able to look in and see the golf course and see this first tee facility. Well, um, when uh, Trinity Forest came along and they got this new offer, well, they decided to move, uh, change their plans and move there, which uh, completely makes sense. Um, but it also means they canceled their programming in Southern Dallas. Um, and so uh, the only programming they do in Southern Dallas is at Trinity Forest for those kids that can get to Trinity Forest. And so uh, what, what happened immediately once they canceled programming, uh, it left a, a vacuum. Uh, there was a number of kids that uh, basically didn't have access to the golf course anymore. And so I always had a golf academy. I always worked with kids, but obviously everyone can't afford that. And that's where the first tee came in for me. Um, if you came to me and you couldn't afford it, I'd say, oh, you need to join our first tee program. I'd make sure you got golf clubs, get lessons, all that stuff. Well, with that gone, that was out of the way. And so I had to figure out a way uh, to be able to, to help those kids. And so um, I, I've always wanted to have an active uh, junior golf program. Um, I've had, always had thoughts of having a, a, a nonprofit. Um, but I never had the reason to. I don't know if I was compelled to. And so uh, to start the foundation, I almost feel like um, I was made to do it. Um, there was no way I could look these kids in the face and not give them some type of solution to be able to help them. 
Um, and so I uh, started talking to a, a few of my mentors um, and advocates and uh, was letting them know that, hey, I, I really need to do something. I got about 50 kids um, that can't afford golf instruction. They need golf clubs. They need golf equipment. Um, and um, so the foundation was born. Um, they uh, led me to an attorney. Um, I wanted to start out with three pillars. And those three pillars were to provide golf instruction and access to the golf course, provide tournament entry fees for kids that were showed themselves proficient. Um, I wanted to provide jobs uh, because one of the things that I noticed when I came was that you had all these teenagers that didn't really have many options. Like they couldn't even just walk to the grocery store and become a bagger. Um, like, and they need ways to make money. Um, a lot of single parent homes, uh, a, lot of, a lot of fatherless homes. And so I was giving kids jobs at the golf course and it was completely foreign to them. They had no idea what was going on. They thought the golf course was some place that was um, not for them. They couldn't come inside the gates. And so I wanted to welcome them because every kid in this community doesn't play golf. And so the kid that doesn't play golf, but still needs some help and still wants to go to college, what do you do? Well, you give them a job, you teach them. And so um, I wanted to create internships, to create jobs through internships. So that was the second way I could help a kid. And a kid that wanted to go to college, um, I wanted to be able to give that kid a scholarship. So I could get a kid in a program at seven or eight, could give them their first job at 15 or 16, uh, which immediately affected the economics of their house, by the way. Um, and then if they worked really hard and wanted to go to college, I could give them a scholarship. And so had a holistic way to have a kid in a program from age seven or eight, stay in the program through age 22 or 23 and holistically um, affect that individual, not just teach them golf and golf skills, but teach them life skills, teach them how to open a checking account, um, teach them how to get up on time and get to work every day, um, create a fail safe environment where um, they don't feel all the pressure of having to be perfect all the time. And we started that um, in 2008, um, excuse me, in 2018. Um, and our first year uh, was fantastic. We had maybe uh, 18 kids go through our program and it's just been growing from there over the last four years. Um, since uh, we've been doing that, um, we've had uh, over 200 kids come through our junior golf program, we've had over 50 paid internships, uh, we've given away over $60,000 in scholarships, all with the initial thoughts of just being focused on youth uh, to give access and instruction, internships and jobs and scholarships. Um, and so that's how we started in 2018. Uh, second part of that, if you ask where we're going, our programs piece is the heart of what we do. Uh, but one of the things that we've recognized, especially with having over 200 kids in our program, is, wow, uh, we got to start thinking about capacity. Uh, we got to start thinking about the facility. Uh, we need to be a better partner with the city. Um, and so um, if our first strategic initiatives was programs, then we've added two P's to that. So we have three P's now that are our pillars. And so programs is one. We have to do everything we possibly can to program Cedar Crest Golf Course. Um, our second P is preservation. Uh, we have to do everything we possibly can to preserve uh, Cedar Crest and its rich history. And our third P is promotion. Uh, we have to promote and share our stories and hopefully win over advocates and supporters so that we can do more uh, that affects all three of those pillars, the programs, preservation and promotion. And so where we're going is our next step of our journey and involvement is to preserve the golf course in a much better way, making improvements. And so one of the ways that we plan to do that is through recognizing some of the history I shared with you before. I started a capital campaign this year to 
put a statue on the golf course. I wanted to put a statue of Charlie Siffer. I thought it'd be great just uh, on Saturday mornings walking by with our kids to be able to show them that, introduce a golfer to them other than Tiger Woods, to, to let them know uh, what real possibilities might be before them if they work hard. So I wanted to raise $100,000 for this statue. And it was going to be like a garden and have some other stuff around it. And our capital campaign this year has been ultra successful. Um, currently, we're sitting at about uh, 400000 obviously well, well above uh, what my initial thoughts were. And so that allows us to be do it bigger and better. And so now we're putting up, we want to put up a statue of not only Charlie Sifford, but we want to put up a statue of uh, Walter Hagen as well. And we want to uh, memorialize A.W. Tillinghast and this golf course as an A.W. Tillinghast design. And so we have a, a statue garden uh, that we're going to put behind uh, hole 18. I've just started to have conversations with the parks department. Uh, we're hoping to break ground uh, in 2022. Um, we're also going to have, uh, we're going to lose a putting green because of that. So it gives me an opportunity to enhance one of our other putting greens, to either double it in size or add more greens um, in our practice facility, which should help us with capacity when we have kids there or our daily traffic. Um, also adding um, covered hitting stations on the back of the range, um, along with um, uh, synthetic turf to help us uh, not chew up our range uh, uh, so so quickly so we can be more efficient there. Um, and the thought is, and maybe this will kind of uh, be a good parallel or analogy, you know, if you're a college uh, basketball coach or football coach and you want to go recruit, like I don't care how good of a coach you are, if you don't have the facilities, like that, that, get, that kid's not coming to sign with you. It's just not. Um, he's going to go to uh, Texas or A&M or whatever. And so, um, you know, if we really are going to get to the point where we're affecting 500 kids a year, 1,000 kids a year, we have to have the type of facility that can deliver that, help us to deliver that. Um, it has to complement what we're doing. And so that's where the preservation piece of this comes in. And we're raising funds to preserve the golf course and preserve the history is to make this facility better for the people that we're trying to help people in this community and the youth of the community. Third part of that promotion. We have a couple of huge events that we're working on right now with the golf channel. Um, one is a collegiate event. Um, and uh, the other is an event that I can't mention, <laughs> but uh, it's been phenomenal to be a part of these conversations. Uh, they recognize the rich history of Cedar Crest. Uh, they recognize uh, the involvement um, of the Dallas community um, and what's ahead, um, the improvements that are coming to this area. Soon, uh, this, this neighborhood is going to be um, like Bishop Arts, um, uh, or it's going to be like West Dallas when you look at Trinity Grove. Um, and we're just on the beginning edges of that. I think we're at the, if there was a 10-year window, like we're on the very beginning of that. And in 10 years, you won't recognize this place. And Cedar Crest will be the, the cornerstone. Um, and so if you can imagine a nationally televised event on the Golf Channel with wall-to-wall -wall coverage and stories of the history of Cedar Crest and uh, even sharing parts of the golf course that have been improved or uh, statues in our statue garden, this is the direction that we're going, hopefully culminating to a centennial year in 2027, which will be the centennial year of the 1927 PGA Championship being here in Dallas. And in my talks with the PGA of America, you know that I don't know if you know this, but the 2027 PGA is in Dallas. It's at PGA Frisco. Convenient timing. Yeah, yeah. So our, in our meeting, we were talking about this and talking about Cedar Crest, and I brought that up. And everybody in the room, the entire room, was like, "Is that is that true? Is that is that the hundred year anniversary? Really? Wow! 
Like complete yeah, lucky strike. That complete is your history strike. too. <laughs> no idea. And so the parallels that'll be going um, and the storytelling that will be able to take place when the 27 PGA championship is there of what's going on in far, far North Dallas. But let's also share a part of this history of what's going on in Southern Dallas. Um, uh, a lot of storytelling that'll be gone going through that. And this is going to be the, the golf Mecca um, Dallas. Um, this is going to be center of the golf world. Ryder cups um, are coming uh, to yep. Dallas um, and Cedar Crest is going to be a part of all of that. No, phenomenal. And I think what you said, what the foundation's doing and it is a true representation of the community in which the course sits in. And I think for a lot of other places that have tried to do similar things, whether it's first tee or some other organization, there's always like a bar for entry for a lot of kids. And when you brought up the, the Charlie Sifford statue, I was like, well, yeah, no kidding. Because most minority kids, if they don't see somebody that looks like them, they're probably not going to go do it. And you're giving them an avenue of saying, here, come, come here, come hang out here. We will take care of you. This is a safe place. We're not only teaching you a game, a sport that you can enjoy your whole life. We're teaching you life skills that you're going to carry on and potentially get employment out of it, which is yeah. phenomenal. I think my question for you then is that at other places, and, and this isn't just a I am foundation or Cedar Crest question, but really you you've received many awards from the North Texas PGA chapter. You're very well recognized within your field. And specifically as like one of the few African-American golf professionals, where is the growth? Where is the boom that everybody thought was going to come post Tiger Woods? That's interesting. Um, so there, there, there has been a very positive wave in the golf space based on what Tiger did starting back in 1996. Part of the wave that you would expect to see, I think, is uh, the perspective has to be adjusted. So from a minority standpoint, I would say minority representation in golf, um, just in players, not industry-wide working or anything like that, but just in golfers, uh, people that play, is up probably 25 to 30% amongst uh, minority groups, okay? Now, there might not be that wave that you anticipated, that tidal wave, because honestly, before that, the numbers were dismal. So if there was some thought that, oh, golf is going to be so diverse and with immediate impacts. Yeah. Like, you know, every other person you see is going to be some marginalized group. And that's just not the case. If there's a hundred PGA members now that are African-American, well, before 97, there were five. Um, if there were, I don't know, 30 million golfers in the country, you know, um, before, uh, Tiger Woods, um, 29 million, you know, of them, you know, were, were Caucasian. And so uh, there's a wave there, but not a wave from a standpoint of, man, this is really going to be different. I, I think it's a longer walk than that. Golf has purposely, purposely in its history, always been exclusive and proud of it. Never has this industry ever focused on being inclusive until really the last three to four years. 
And this is a sport that's been around since the 1600s. Like this sport was built for the elites. And so to think that there would be some huge shift in just 25 years from a sport that in a lot of ways now is still elitist, you know, I'll give you a quick example. I'm sorry for these long-winded answers, but I love no, no, I, I, please, I enjoy it. So I can talk to people now, boardrooms, average golfer in my golf shop, and they can think, oh, golf is so much more progressive. Golf is much, so much more inclusive. So I, you and I can go to the tee box right now, and my wife can come play with us. Your wife can come play with us. And the guys behind us will see our wives with us, and they'll amongst themselves say, oh, shit, are we playing behind the ladies? Yeah, oh, God, I hope they don't slow the course down. Good Lord, God, I, I got to be out of here. They're going to take all day. Like, it's one of the most sexist sports um, on the planet, right? Same thing happens with minority groups, things like that. And so that's still acceptable is the only point, the point, the point that I'm making. If you and I were in a group talking about ladies in another group and how slow they are, that's acceptable today. It's 2021, dude, about to be 2022, and that's acceptable, right? Um, so there's not any form of um, equal thought, um, equal perspective um, when, you're, when you're dealing with golf just yet. Golf is more open. Golf is more inviting. Golf is working on being more inclusive. Everybody I talk to about diversity and inclusion, I, I, I try to immediately let them know, stop focusing on diversity. Stop it, please. This has nothing to do with the diversity. We're all different. We're all different, but we're the same. So the fact that DNI even starts with diversity speaks to the group that initially thought of it and focused on the difference rather than being on the inclusive nature. Yeah, white um, people. And so, yeah, I, I didn't say that, but that's what I was I leaning can. towards. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you were coming to my house for a dinner party, one of the first things I would want to know is, hey, what, what are you interested in? What do you eat? What don't you eat? What do you drink? Like, I'm very interested in that. And to be able to operate and have no clue what's important uh, to marginalized groups. No clue uh, of what's attractive to them. We have to learn all those things. And honestly, that takes time. And that's what's been learned over these last 25 years, which is why golf is now saying, ah, you know what? We need to be more inclusive. We, we don't have any managers in our industry that are African-American, uh, that are Mexican-American, um, Indian-American. Um, it's just any hyphenated American. Like, it's just not the case, you know? And so... The fact that it's being addressed finally, uh, the fact that it's finally guys maybe in my position that are able to somewhat hold people accountable uh, based on what they are saying that they want to do and what they want to try to be um, allows for golf to continue to grow. In all honesty, that's why golf was losing golfers for so many years, because even amongst white people, like golf was elitist, <laughs> you know, like don't wear your hat backwards. Uh, don't wear your shirt tail out. Uh, do you have the right socks on? Like it, it's ridiculous to be that traditional. And you can't be that conservative and grow. You can't be that conservative and still and want no measure of change and think that you're going to be a part of any dynamic moving forward on this planet. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Hard. Uh, it, it, uh, thank you for answering my question. I, I hope I did. Um, you did. And, and it's like, you know, I'm going to ask questions because honestly, it's a, it's coming from a, a, I hope you understand, it's coming from a good spot of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Learn and trying to, to understand and see what I can do to, to make a difference, to make change. You know, Dallas has such a rich golf history and we discussed it a lot. And we talk about like golf being 
basically there's there's pillars and i think it's highlighted a little bit in specifically in the dallas golf scene is that you have some uber high-end private country clubs with so much money behind them to include all male clubs still oh yeah and proud of it very proud of it <laughs> to the bottom end of it but you also have phenomenal role models both at PJ Tour superstars, Jordan Speed. You want to, we could go down the line back 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of major championship winners that have come from Dallas. Is that a representative of Dallas itself? Or is that just a representative of what the game of golf in Dallas is like? Is it that separate? Because it seems like there's not a lot of middle ground really there. I- I absolutely think it's that separate. Yes. Dallas as a city as a whole is separate in that way, but golf as an industry is separate in that way too. It's, it's very, um, again, exclusive. There's just certain places, you know, America's a great place, dude. And um, yeah, it's one of the best places on the planet, hands down. I don't think you'll any, get anybody to argue that. And I know most of the country is Christian, but I just got to tell you, we have some, 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 some deep, 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 scars and injuries that we hopefully can heal one day but i gotta tell you even as christians sunday mornings are one of the most segregated parts uh of our culture it's baffling it it it, it literally is baffling it's considered today in almost 2022 abnormal for you to show up with your family at a any church on a sunday morning uh that's predominantly african-american it's abnormal for me to drive north and to pull up in uh, park cities to go to uh, any church and walk in with my family um, and just human nature of it would make either of us feel out of place, you know? And so um, we can talk about that from a cultural standpoint and really dive into that. But if we just take top level and just talk about golf as an industry, it's that exact same type of uh, thing. That's the exact same type of vibe, you know, certain places you can go and yeah, it's no big deal. It's Irving golf club, big deal. Right. Um, but, you know, if you walk into Four Seasons the wrong way or you show up and can't get past the guard at Dallas National or Trinity Forest, um, you know, and I just pick two places in Oak Cliff, you know, right. you know, you're in the wrong place. And it's like, hey, no, you don't belong here. Um, and so when you operate in that way, you know, you really have to be purposeful in how you how you include uh, others and how you invite others. Um, you know, there has to be an invitation there. You have to be purposeful about it. Even if you're going to be an all-males club, um, you can be an all-males club. Okay, that's your right. We get that. Um, but hopefully there's invitations there, you know, to, uh, to, to uh, create opportunities um, to, to be something different um, and to not just staunchly uh, be held in that, in, that, in that same mold, in that same box forever. Um, you know, it, it's just it's unfortunate that it's been acceptable all these years. Um, and I'm hoping that we as people have evolved enough that we will no longer stand for that. That's no longer acceptable for human nature. Um, and so I'm hoping that we've grown um, and can get past it. Going back to what you said, I think in the beginning that, you know, specifically in the last three to four years, you do see things changing, that things are evolving. And some of those, you know, boundaries are starting to come down a little bit and, and loosen and make it so it's more inviting. Um, and I think that's, you know, the hope that everybody has moving forward you have a lot going on you have a ton on your plate not only running a golf course running a foundation but what keeps you going 
because it's it seems like a lot you're i know you have really good help around you but when you're also like you know the the lead trainer you're 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 trying to mold all these young minds to be the next you so you have staff you have help but at the same time you're really doing it walking hand in hand with them yeah unfortunately yeah it's it's just, it, it's, it started that way and um even with some of the things that are coming up um i'll have to get some lieutenants um, to really help me with some of this stuff. I, I really foresee in my immediate future that I probably won't be able to teach anymore. You know, my career has just kind of evolved and I'm not just a head pro that can go out on the range, you know, for yep. six hours and go teach. Um, and so I realized that and uh, it's actually part of my planning. I have a, uh, a business meeting here in about uh, 20 minutes, uh, 20, 25 minutes. And uh, that's exactly part of the process. We've got our org chart and, talking about responsibilities and, and how this modifies and changes going forward um, because we have to scale, we have to grow. And um, part of that um, is the involvement of how we do things now. Um, and so um, if I keep doing things the way that I'm doing now with everything that we have in front of us, um, I'll end up letting something slip through the cracks or making a huge mistake and um, put, put a lot of this um, in danger. And so I can't do that. To answer your other question as to how do I do all this stuff, um, I don't know if I could really express how fortunate or, or, or lucky I feel to be doing what I'm doing. Um, I could have a job that I hate. Um, I, I love creating. Um, uh, I love having an idea, massaging it and working on it and seeing it come into life, um, watching other people have an appreciation for it, almost to the point that if they don't get it, they feel like I've, I've taken the opportunity from them. Um, like that's, that's, that, that, that that's a, um, almost like a power of God, so to speak. So if, if God gives me the thought and I can see it in my head and he gives me all the tools that I need to create it, my hands, my words, um, my communication skills, um, whatever I've learned in my life, I apply all of that to this idea to watch it, like come to form and come to life in some type of way. And to hand that off to somebody else and watch them play with it and it continues to grow and form. Like there's nothing else better than that. Um, and so I could do that with a golf tournament. Um, I could do that with a kid's program. Um, I could do that with so many different things. And so to be able to have the opportunity to get up and do that um, is very exciting to me. I like the idea of teaching one day, the next day being a tournament coordinator, the next day being a merchandiser, the next day being a fundraiser, the next day being a golfer. Um, like literally my job can be different over the span of two weeks. Um, and it's all centered around golf. All of it for me is golf promotion. So I can promote Cedar Crest. I can promote golf history. I can promote the PGA or the NTPGA. I can promote um, our kids programs. Um, I could promote uh, anything in and around golf that I think is going to help us and all of us to be able to move in the same direction. Um, and so when I'm doing that, like I tell my wife, hey, listen, if my day starts at six, I guarantee you my day will end at six. I, it's 12 hours and I'm going to try to go everything I can in those 12 hours. Um, uh, but I love it. I love it. Um, I'm a steward. Um, I'm not going to be a Cedar Crest forever. The city of Dallas owns the golf course, owns the land. I'm just providing the service. So I'm only here for a period of time. Um, and I, I recognize that. Um, I, well, even with the foundation, I've created something with this foundation that's way bigger than me. The board is going to take this thing and run with it. Hopefully after I decide to do something else 
I hope to still be on it, but you know, like it's, it's something way bigger than me. And so the fact that I could be on it and leave it um, and it continues to help people uh, for years or decades after uh, I'm done with it, like, yeah, man, like that's what you want to create. Um, and so I just get jazzed about being able to do something like that um, and to be a part of something like that. And then when I'm done, you know, I get to step to the side or hand it off or look at it and look at my work. And so I don't have ownership of this thing. I just have it for a little bit, a little bit of time. And so in the time that I have it, I just want to enjoy it. I just want to, uh, you know, if this is a shiny car. I just want to polish it. I just want to keep the, the, the rims looking good. You know, that's what I want to do. And, um, you know, when I have to give it back, I'm going to give it back. And I think that's how I stay fresh. Um, just understanding that I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to do it forever. I'm just going to do it for as long as I can. Very well said. Ira, I appreciate the time today. Couldn't ask for a, a better guest. I was completely smitten when I went to Cedar Crest in the spring of this year, and I cannot wait to get back there again next year. If people want to support what you're doing, first and foremost, if you're in Dallas or you're traveling to Dallas, go play Cedar Crest. It's an awesome golf course. Secondly, get on the I Am A Golfer Foundation website. I'll put the link in the description. And uh, any, any place else you want me to direct them to? Um, yeah, IamAGolfer.com, GolfCedarCrest.com um, are both the websites. If you're coming by Cedar Crest, uh, please say hello. Just know that uh, I'm available to help however I can, any way that I can. I'm at your service, um, and my staff is too. Um, so, um, when you see young people at Cedar Crest, please recognize how big those moments are for them. So when they see you and they say, hi, how are you doing? Or they introduce themselves to you and they're looking you in the eye. You just don't understand what that does for their development, what it means to them with their self-worth, their self-value. Um, it's wrapped up in what they're doing every single day. And that confidence is going to take them on to somewhere in life they wouldn't otherwise go. So thank you everybody for doing that. And thanks for giving me an opportunity to share today. Um, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Sarah. All right. Talk to you soon.